0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health. With me, as always, are my fellow Associate Editors, Barry Bettino and Kevin Droole. This is our December 2022 episode, number 34 all-time, and hopefully, like another great 34, Walter Payton, will carry this episode all the way to the end zone. It's been known to happen from time to time. Wherever however you're listening today, thank you so much for spending time with us. It's certainly appreciated. We know that many of you have had a unique journey into the safety profession, and we want to hear more about it for our My Story feature in the magazine. Submit your personal stories about how you got into the safety field by emailing us at nsc.org. You can view past My Story entries and catch up on other news from around the safety world on our website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com. In this month's episode, Kevin will take us on a deep dive into his feature story and head protection. We'll also be joined by safety and health columnist Richard Hawk to talk about listening skills in our latest installment of Five Questions With. And the three of us will share lessons learned in what else? The What Do We Learn segment. Is everybody ready? Let's go.
1: Each month here at On the Safe Side, we take a look at a feature story from the latest issue of Safety and Health magazine, which we call our Deep Dive segment. In the December issue of Safety and Health, Kevin examines the need for head protection to guard against both external and internal injuries. In his story, Kevin writes about head protection standards to be aware of, assessing your organization's need for head protection, along with proper fit and maintenance. So Kevin, could you take us on a dive deeper into this topic?
2: Certainly, and thank you, Barry Botino, for that kind introduction. Uh,
1: A lack of grace
2: and so-so coordination make me more of a cannonballer in all honesty, but I'm happy to embark on this deep dive with everyone. Really, the crux of this story, which again is examining tips and trends in, in head protection, comes with the help of a quote from David Consider, who's a senior workplace safety consultant at NSC. When referencing head protection, David says, quote, it's an absolute must in most hazardous environments, the infamous ones being construction and mining. So that quote supports what the story establishes from the jump, that safeguarding against workplace hazards that could lead to a blow to the head is required by OSHA, which focuses on head protection and standards 1910.135A and 1926.100A. Again, David speaks to what many of our listeners may already know, that these hazards commonly are found in construction. And NIOSH data follows suit, showing that a quarter of all fatalities in construction from 2003 to 2010 were the result of a traumatic brain injury. But still, the risk for head injuries exists in multiple industries beyond construction. So, the tips and trends that experts share in the story apply throughout the occupational safety world. So, Kevin, what types of head protection are there? The primary ones discussed in the story are hard hats, bump caps, and helmets. And there are strengths and limitations for each which we get into in the story and is also is discussed and, and really driven home by everyone. The usage is really gonna depend on the type of work and the hazard you anticipate in your workplace. Under the consensus standard on head protection, that's ANSI-IT Z89.1, head protection is rated by type and class. It's in the story, I'll, I'll explore it as quickly as I can. Type one is going to reduce the force of impacts only from blows to the top of the head, whereas type 2 is going to reduce the force of impact from blows to both the top and the sides of the head. As pertains to classes, you've got class G, which reduces danger from exposure to low-voltage electrical conductors of up to 2,200 volts. Class E is dealing with reducing those conductors of up to 20,000 volts, and class C doesn't protect from electrical conductors. So again, getting into these for instances and, and judging based on your hazards in your industry, If, say, you're working in food processing or auto repair, the best choice might be a bump cap because the risks over time for those minor head injuries, maybe head bumps and lacerations, are a little bit more prevalent and borne out than the possibility of a TBI. Now, that's not to say those can't happen. Anything can happen. We can attest to that with our audience and with what we've covered, but it's generally, by and large, what might be best for this particular industry. With those bump caps, though, an important note is that they do not meet the NC Type 1 or Type 2 head protection requirements for the force of impact of blows to the top and the size of the head. So those won't be the type of, of head protection you use for more hazardous work. And there's a quote in there, you know, doubling down on that. You're not going to see and you shouldn't see someone on a construction site wearing, wearing a bump cap. What you will see on a construction site, though, traditionally are those hard hats. We know they're a time-honored form of head protection when we introduce this segment, if you've gotten your magazine, looked at it before you even flipped to that spread, I'm guessing you might have had the image in your head of a worker in a hard hat. With those hard hats, though, it's vital that, as with any personal protective equipment, the hard hat fits properly. David Consider says that improper fit is the leading excuse for why workers don't wear head protection in the first place. With that fitting, just some expert advice on that front. To adjust the head harness to leave about a one to one and a quarter inch gap between the hard shell and your head. To make sure the hard hat doesn't fall off your head when you bend over, to situate the hard hat with the bill facing forward, and a quick aside, the story does examine hard hats that are marked with a reverse donning symbol, which is reminiscent of the the recycling symbol we see on bins and elsewhere, it's it's similar to that, it's oriented a little bit different. If it's indicated with that symbol, it shows that those hard hats have been tested to safely be worn with the brim facing backward. By and large, unless it's got that symbol, you want to situate the hard hat with your your bill facing forward. And also, you want to clean the hard hat with mild soap and water as needed and regularly inspect the hard hat for cracks, gouges, or for stress
1: discolorations. Well, Kevin, how else has technology impacted head protection?
2: Another form of head protection, and it somehow is simultaneously established and emerging, is helmets. And the helmets kind of reflect how technology has influenced head protection manufacturers just with the way that they're they're contoured a little bit, which we'll we'll get into and, and which the story discusses. One of the sources in the story is Stacy Simmons and she's national account manager at Bullard and chair of the IC Head Protection Product Group that oversees standard updates. She says that a Z eighty nine revision is in the early stages of development and the objective of this particular revision is to address side impact and chin straps on helmets that, that are becoming more prevalent. But in order to do that, the standard group has needed to do extensive research on a European safety standard. They're a mountaineering-style construction helmet, and they're designed to meet these European safety standards. But there's not yet a corresponding standard in the U.S. at these early stages of determining how best to merge the elements of the standard with what is in the U.S. with Z89. The revision, though, would not be expected to be published until... 2024. So they're again, they're in the midst of the next revision cycle. The proponents, though, of helmets would say that if there's an exposure to a fall, a helmet is going to be preferred because it's going to guard against that front and side impact. And the chin strap is designed to prevent helmets from falling uh, from the worker's head on impact. We kind of started with a, a David Consider quote, and, and we'll end with one as the story does. And that's just the the takeaway here is ultimately quote, uh, what we're here to do is choose the right head protection that's going to prevent injuries
1: and save lives. Well, thanks, Kevin, for all your work on this story. If you want to read uh, Kevin's head protection feature story and plenty of other news from around the safety world, please check out the December issue of Safety and Health Magazine that probably comes to many of your mailboxes, or you can visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com.
0: Every safety professional has a unique story. So what's yours? Safety Health Magazine wants to hear about your unique path into the occupational health and safety field for our My Story column. Email your submission to nsc.org to share the road you traveled in your
1: career journey of keeping workers safe and healthy. According to the National Safety Council's Supervisor Safety Manual, The average supervisor spends about 70% of the workday communicating. Of that time each day, listening takes up nearly 45%. How safety professionals listen can determine the connection they have with workers and others that they interact with each day. With us this month to talk about listening is Richard Hawk, a veteran safety expert, professional speaker, safety and health columnist, and a friend of the On the Safe Side podcast, and I might add, quite the guitar player. Richard, thanks for joining us on the safe side.
3: Oh, thanks, Barry. Thanks for the intro, too.
1: You bet. Richard, I wanted to ask, you regularly speak to safety professionals about listening. In general, how do most people actually listen?
3: Well, most people don't listen well, but safety professionals tend to be above average. Not that they all listen perfectly type thing, but they do. And part of it's because our job, as you just mentioned involves interacting with people a lot, typically. You know, some don't. If you're some type of safety engineer where you just review projects, that's different. But also, we have a very specific thing that we do is people come to us often with problems or something they need advice on. So we have to, to be able to respond to something like that, you have to know what they said to you. If they said something and you didn't understand it, then you're not going to give them the correct response. So we actually practice, I guess you could call it that, listening as part of our job. And of course, that spills over into our day-to-day life. So I have found generally, and I've spoken to hundreds and hundreds of groups, uh, not just safety professionals, that they tend to be better listeners, particularly to try to figure out why you're saying what you're saying and what you're saying. However, we still fall into the common trap safety professionals do for sure too, of not really paying attention. You know, listening isn't, it's not hearing, right? That's a different word. Hearing is involved in listening. But sometimes we don't pay attention to all the signals we're getting as much because we're too busy thinking about what answer we're going to give or how we're going to respond about ourselves. So even let's say somebody comes to me right now i'm working on a demolition job so i you know as a safety professional and so people come to me and say hey hawk uh, most of the guys on and gals on jobs site call me hawk they say hey hawk we have over by this scaffold we have such and such well i need to know what that is that the such and such So I have learned to, rather than just give them an answer, I'll ask them a question about, I say, all right, what are you talking about? Where at? You know, what elevation is that? Now, why did you have to come to me? You know, I'll I'll ask them questions so I can find out for myself for something specific job-related. And that is actually kind of the mainstay of active listening, is to try to figure out all the different things that the person's signals are sending me. So uh, if somebody comes with that example to me about a problem with scaffold somewhere, I'll also try to pay attention with their facial expressions, their body movements. How serious is it? How serious does it seem? Uh, are, are, they, are they still even lighthearted about it? Then maybe it's nothing, uh, no big deal. But do they seem like it's something that is, I need to get right to, something that is vital? So I think as safety professionals, I've found, because of our job, we learn to be better listeners than average. Typically, when somebody comes to you with anything, I came to you, Barry, and I said, uh, hey, Barry, I I just was fishing. Uh, Last week, I caught this big old bass. You wouldn't believe it was one of the largest ones I've ever caught. Your tendency, which happens most of the time, is to think about the time you went fishing. When you caught this salmon or when you went fishing for a perch or whatever, and that's how you'll respond. You'll say, oh, really? Well, you know, I went perch fishing last week and I caught more perch than I ever have before. That's what most people typically do. My wife went to a seminar with me one time with safety professionals now. Uh, it was in South Carolina. And it was the first time she ever went to one of my seminars on listening. And when I told her about that, how people tend to just answer with something that's about themselves, we got back to the hotel room, she goes, honey, do I do that? I said, well, how about this? I thought I had a really cool answer for her. I said, when we go, it was like a shrimp brew, it was called. It was out on a boat that night and dance. It was fun. I said, you pay attention tonight. In other words, I didn't say whether she did it or not, right? I said, pay attention to everybody and see if they do it. Okay. So we get back after we went to the stripper. room, had a great time. We're back at the hotel room and I should have kept my mouth shut, but I didn't. I said, hey, honey. I said, how about what I was talking about at my seminar about listening, about how people just talk about themselves when somebody says something? She goes, oh, my word. She goes, everybody does it. And then she looks at me and it's not a uh, loving look. And she goes, I do it too. She said, you give seminars on this why didn't you tell me that I do that? So, uh she wasn't really mad at me, but she was like, "Why didn't you tell me I do that?" I said, "I, I don't know. I I'm, I know better than that." <laughs> but it's true and these were all safety professionals and this was not on the job, so maybe there's some more looseness to how, but that's what people do. They when you talk to them, they'll be thinking in their head typically what their response is going to be. You know, I don't know who said this, but some wise person said that the the uh, opposite of talking isn't listening. It's waiting for your turn to talk. And that's what we got to beat up. That's what we got to stop doing if we want to be better listeners. And one of the best ways to do it, it's with any social skill or with really any skill, is to purposely pay attention to how we listen. And that's one very specific area that you should pay attention to. How often when somebody tells me that they did something, not just job-related, but anything, do I respond with something about myself? Do I do that 10% of the time, 30%, 50%, 80%? You might be surprised how often you do it because I purposely observe people on and off the job to see how often they do that. And likewise, I try and work on my own skills, particularly as a safety professional. And when someone comes to me with something, I don't just answer them. I, what I call further questions, I would say to them, all right, well, where is this scaffold? So then they know I did know they said scaffold. And I'll say, well, why'd you come to me with this? How important is it? Or, you know, has it been that way for a long time? I won't just give them an answer. I won't just say, what I mean by answer is I won't just say, let's go to the scaffold. Or I won't just say, here's what you need to do, right? I will do something that makes it proves to them that I listen to them. So I would say, if I was to sum that up, safety professionals are above average but certainly they're not the best speakers I've seen. Best ones I've seen in some professions have been people that are like social workers, right? And people that are, of course, part of their work is psychologists or psychologists. They tend to be the best listeners, but that's truly their job, right? That's what they do for a living as like 70% is to really find out about you. And I would put safety professionals, if the 50% is average, I'd put us at like 65,
0: 70%. So Richard, along these same lines, uh, what makes a good listener?
3: There's three things that I have found, and I try to do this myself completely. One, you want to know. In other words, you have a desire, you're curious about what this person is saying to you. You're not there to brag about yourself. You're not interacting with that person to, you know, better yourself or to show off or anything like that. You, and you're really curious. I do. And I I meet so many people, as you can imagine, with my regular work and also uh, for my speaking, especially in consulting. And I do. I really, I've learned, I want to know about that person and what they do, you know, and I was talking earlier to Kevin and Alan and you, Barry, the stuff you were telling me about yourself. And how long I wanted to know. So number one is to have a a real desire, a honest desire to want to know about the person. Second one, second thing that makes somebody a good listener is that they think about what the person is saying about what they're saying, not about what you're going to say back to them. And that takes some self-discipline as soon as if like you were saying, like, yeah, I've been playing guitar since I've been a kid. I talk guitar. So if somebody says to me, Oh, I have a Fender guitar. I I got to work hard to pay attention to the fact that they're saying about their Fender guitar. And I, and I think to myself, Oh, well, why did they buy a Fender guitar? I don't think, Oh, well, I have a Gretsch or, Oh, I have this or that. I, I've, I've disciplined myself. So you got to do that. You got to discipline yourself. So when somebody tells you something, uh, you, Make sure you think about that, not about yourself. And the third one is further questions. I mean, there's all kind of small things. Well, I shouldn't say small in the sense that they're not important. I mean, they're not, you know, major things. Good eye contact matters, but some people have problems with that. You could still be a good listener. Helen Keller was a brilliant listener. She couldn't hear, but she could listen. And uh, Alexander Graham Bell was one of her closest friends. And he even said that, that she would, if you allowed her to touch your face, even though she couldn't hear, she really paid attention to what signals you were sending her. And then that's what she paid attention to. And then she would, which I'm talking about, ask further questions. So if you said to me, uh, Barry tells me about him going fishing and he caught this big bass, I would say to him something like, do you go bass fishing a lot? Do you like bass fishing more than other fishing? You know, some kind of thing, they're called further questions. And sometimes I get this though It my, well, won't I seem like an investigative reporter? No, not if you ask further questions about what the person asked, was talking about. In other words, if Barry said bass fishing and I said something like, um, well, where'd you get the money to do that? That isn't really what he's talking about. He's not talking about his finances, right? He's talking about actually catching a big fish. So as long as you stick to the subject, you can ask a lot of questions. In fact, people will end up feeling really good about the fact that you're interested. So there's the three things that main things that make up a superb listener. One, you want to you want to know what the person is saying. You're curious. You genuinely are looking forward to hearing what they have their story, whatever that story is. Number two, you work on not thinking about yourself and how you relate to the topic more, just really try and think about the topic. Now, at some point you can certainly, Uh, you don't want to just always ask questions. Uh, Eventually I would tell Barry that I like to go perch fishing. Sure, and that helps you connect, but I'll do it purposefully after I have paid attention without thinking about myself to what he said. And the third thing is to ask further questions. And that also signals that you want the person to continue With what they're saying, if Barry says he caught a big bass and I say I caught some perch, I didn't send him a signal that I wanted to hear more about his bass fishing, did I? No. And so there are the three main things that cause somebody to be a superb listener.
2: You indicated, Richard, that safety professionals are above-average listeners in your view. So, in what ways does listening benefit
3: safety pros? It benefits you in all different ways, but particularly safety pros, it really is important. You develop good trusting relationships with the people you work with. They need to trust you because you're the safety, and I put this in quotes, pop, right? That, or somebody who's there to you know, make them follow the rules. That's like how you look like as your position and your job to people generally at first. They come to really trust you and want to tell you stuff. You need to develop that. It doesn't happen naturally. It just doesn't. And so one of the things that listening does is get people to trust you if they can tell you're really interested in what they're saying and you're listening to them. And then they'll tell you more. They'll tell you things that they wouldn't normally tell you after you build that relationship. And that's why it's important. Another thing is you get to know what's going on in the field. I mean, you got to do that, right? I mean, you, you can go inspect things all you want. You can't be everywhere all the time. You need to have folks that are out working come to you with things, positive things. You know, we had this trench and we used the trench box and we had this and that, and this is all great. You know, you need that, but you also need them to want to come to you and say, Oh man, we dropped this. We were doing a lift and, and we dropped this pipe down on the ground or whatever. And they want you to come and see and tell you what happened, see what we can do to stop it. And they trust you that you're not just there to holler at them and listening is what does that. Plus, this is a little aside, but trust me, this is true for sure. It helps you with stress and the safety press particularly, because if you really are listening about a person and paying attention to them and care what they're talking about, you're not thinking about yourself, right? That's a big thing. One of the main reasons we have duress in our life is because we mull over things about ourselves. That's what causes almost all of our thought stress. Oh, what's gonna happen here? What am I gonna do this? Oh man, I hope this doesn't make us so that our record ruins our record, all that kind of stuff. Well, if you actively listen, purposely just pay attention to what the person's saying. You can't be thinking about yourself, really. And then that reduces stress. So that's like a personal thing that helps you. By the way, I gotta tell you something I've learned throughout my life. And I love to go to restaurants and bars. I love playing pool and parties and you know, I'm a very gregarious person, as you can guess. People like People who listen, no matter where you are, I don't care where you go. You can never be, nobody's going to say, Did you see that hawk guy? All he ever did was listen to us, you know, unless you're there for nefarious reasons, which you're not, of course, but uh, people like you. They just like you more, uh, even if it's nothing related to safety, just in your life. And so, Uh, that's how it benefits. And the safety professional gets to know more and more in the field. You know, when I've been on a job site, like construction sites where I was doing a safety consulting, at first people won't open up to me, but after a little while, they tell me everything. And that's what I want. And not for, because I want to get them in trouble. It's because I want to know what's going on so I can do better at my job as a safety and health professional.
1: Well, Richard, in our feature story that's in the December issue of Safety and Health You mentioned that maintaining eye contact and mindfulness are two important aspects of listening. What makes those especially important?
3: The eye contact thing is just bafflingly amazing because then it's been called tunnel to your soul and you and I know that if somebody is giving us good eye contact or great eye contact, it sends energy back and forth in some special way. And here's the scoop about listening. Always give constant eye contact while you're listening. Try not to break away even once. Now, listen, this is only while you're listening. While you're talking, unless it's someone you know very well, like when I talk to my wife Jackie, I don't have to break away with my eye contact on occasion, because we you know we've known each other 40-some years. But in the field, as a state professional, when you're talking. Try not to give constant, steady eye contact. Break away slightly so you're not too intense. Unless you really know the person so well, that that's not a problem. But listening, always. And when the, if the person turns away, you don't have to follow them. Just keep your eyes so that they're where the person would normally look at you. And you can sense so much if you have really good eye contact. And here I have a very specific thing, which I love doing at my seminars and talks. Have everybody in the audience raise their hand after they look at their neighbor, whoever's next to them, eyes, and tell me whether the person that looked at your eyes, raise your hand if this is true, told you or that you have a darker ring around your iris. You know, the iris is the color part of your eye, blue, you know, brown, green. Many people, I don't know what the percentage is, but many people Have a darker ring around their iris. I don't. And some people don't have a darker ring. Like I said, I don't. And so what I do is I have somebody look, just somebody to their left or right, doesn't matter, just so long as somebody looks at you and they look, you know, and you looked at them and tell you, yes, you have a dark ring around your iris. No, you don't have a darker ring around your iris. And it's varying degrees of darkness too. And then I have everybody raise their hand who has, who was just told, They have a dark ring around their iris. Now, why I love doing this is I then say, How many of you here didn't know you had a dark ring around your iris? And Barry, Kevin, and Alan, you would be shocked how many people raise their hand and say, I didn't know that. And, you know, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, some people even have very distinct dark rings around their iris and they didn't realize it on themselves. Well, you should know stuff like that. And you should know that by the people that you give eye contact to. So when I come and see you, I might not remember, but I will look close enough at your iris, at your eyes, to be able to tell whether you have a dark ring around your eyes or not. And I got this from studying Leonardo da Vinci. That was one of the things he would do. And he would, him, unlike me, he'd remember what eye color you had, even after two years after I had met you two years ago, he'd say, oh yeah, Johnny, he had uh, blue eyes with a darker blue ring around it. But that's how good the eye contact should be. You know, you'd be surprised if when you start doing this, you'll say, Well, I really did not give people the kind of eye contact that Hawk told me about. I just started doing that my daughter when I first started doing this years ago. Uh, she was in this high school at the time. She goes, Dad, you're looking at me funny. because I was practicing it. I, I just found out about it and I was starting to do it. I said, Well, what? Don't you like it? She goes, No, I do. She goes, It seems like you're actually paying attention to me. Of course we both got a good laugh out of that, but I was like, oh my word. So now she thinks I pay attention to her. Mindfulness means objectively paying attention, observing if you want to call it that, but you can observe with your ears, you know, sound, something without judgment. Paying attention to somebody while they're talking to you and listening to them, getting their features, getting what they send to you objectively allows you to know more accurately what They're telling you or saying to you or sending to you, whatever it may be. So, Richard, how can we all practice being better listeners? You need something to remind you. Even if it's like, all right, I'm going to go out and do an inspection. I'm going to go talk to this crew. Pay attention to how I'm listening. I used to have what's called a habit hook. I have a uh, sand dial on my desk. I just got two of them, one for here and one for where I work. And I use that as a, it's right in front of me right now. I just turned it over. In fact, I use that as a habit tag, and the habit tag for this for me is to be in the present. Uh, I saw a talk, a wonderful talk, Bob Pike gave, and he was talking about sand dial. So, and how you need it helps you be more present when you realize that you only have so much time to be alive. So that's a habit tag. Now, what? You use as a habit tag. I mean, I've used it where I've actually put something on my phone. It used to be on my watch. Something, you need something to remind you, because you won't do it naturally unless you always do. And you want to get something to remind you to pay attention to how you listen. And of course, I highly recommend that you read about the subject, that you notice how other people listen, people who are excellent listeners and people who are poor listeners. And then you just become more aware. And in the process, you get better at it.
1: Well, Richard, we truly appreciate you being with us on the safe side. And for our listeners out there to this podcast, you can read more about listening in our December issue of Safety and Health Magazine. Uh, Thanks again, Richard. Where can people
3: find you online? Makesafetyfun.com. Makesafetyfun.com. You'll see also where you can sign up for my easy and safety stuff. But I'm transferring it over to, like you guys are doing, to a podcast. And it'll be a podcast about funny stuff that has to do with safety with some tips on different things.
1: Thanks, Richard. We appreciate it.
0: As we approach the end of this episode, it's about that time to discuss what we've learned in the past month, whether on the job or off. To get things started, I'll talk about the um, latest numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. they Typically, send out two major sets of statistics when it comes to workplace safety in November and December. By the time this airs, we'll have the other set of numbers, but I'll talk about the first set. I guess a slight unfortunate news in terms of injuries in private industry. There were about 2.2 million non-fatal injuries in 2021, and that's up from 2.1 million in 2020 and the rate of non-fatal injuries increased to 2.3 per 100 full-time equivalent workers, and that's up from 2.2 in 2020. I guess the good news is that because the COVID-19 pandemic has at least declined, we've seen a decrease in the number
1: of non-fatal illnesses. Barry, what about you? Well, Alan, I, I recently wrote an interesting news item for our website. It was a Canadian study, and the big takeaway was that 70% of workers who are injured on the job are experiencing persistent pain 18 months after being injured. And the study really dives into the importance of reinforcing modified duties if necessary when folks return to work, and also the importance of return to work planning when someone is injured. So you can check that out at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Kevin, how about you? I learned that even though, as we've discussed and attendees at Congress and Expo
2: here, that even though there can be little change in the OSHA's top 10 most cited standards of the given fiscal year, that there at least can be some new wrinkles in, in safety and health. This year, we presented the breakdown of the regional top 10 data, the, the 10 OSHA regions. And while a lot of that is top heavy with the usual suspects for the, the federal data, there were a few differences and things to highlight Kudos to our senior graphic designer, Mike Sharkey, for laying that out and and presenting it. Folks and subscribers of of the magazine know it's quite the spread just with all the different presentations, but thought it really augmented things and just was a different visual presentation. Little trivia on that note, hazard communication, which was the second most cited uh, federally, was number one and and two OSHA regions, numbers three and nine. And just you're looking at it, maybe you'll connect some, some dots, some, for instance, in Region 9, which includes California and Arizona and and Hawaii, Nevada, and some other um, territories of the U.S. Electrical general requirements and electrical wiring methods are second and third most cited, respectively. And then fire protection, portable fire extinguishers is fifth. So not to typecast, but you kind of read those in succession and you think, okay, maybe there's an an electrical mishap and it leads to a fire on, on a job site good ad on our part, the, the regular things, in, in addition to the data, the Q&A with Patrick Kappas, who we'll, we'll thank once again for being so giving of his time. If you were there in San Diego this year, we, we did a, a second presentation just because there was an overflow crowd at the first. We always appreciate
0: Osh's cooperation with the top 10 and, and everyone on, on the team. Is there something important that you learned this month? Share it with us via email at nsc.org.
2: Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this month's episode. We know that your time is valuable and we appreciate you spending some of it with the three of us. If you'd like to share some feedback, email us at safehealth at nsc.org. We'd also appreciate you rating and reviewing this podcast. To find stories such as the feature on head protection and all of the latest news from around the safety world, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Make sure you follow us on your favorite social media channel. You can find us on Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Original music for this podcast was composed by Steve Maslin. Thank you, Steve. We'll be back next month to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. In the meantime, please stay on the safe side.